Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to the second season of Just Sustainability. We've reached the conclusion of the conversation that I had with Taylor Brorby. When I ended by asking him, as I ask all the guests in Just Sustainability, about whether there were any topics that he wanted to talk about that I never got to, he asked me about what were the things that were presently driving my work. That led us to a long conversation about climate change, social and restorative justice, and the need to attend to the histories and narratives that are often ignored. Here's that conversation. And so I want to end uh, our conversation uh, the way I, I end all the conversations for uh, the podcast by inviting you to sort of take the lead, right? Is there anything that you'd like to talk about that I haven't brought up or things that you'd like to ask me about? Yeah, I, I'm wondering what's um, what's keeping you up at night these days, Clement? Like what's fueling your fire and, and where um, where you're at in your own sort of creative spaces right now? Yeah, um, I think for me, uh, there's really two things that I think drive my work right now so uh one is concern about climate change right so Mm -hmm. uh so the interesting thing is i used to not think climate change was a big deal so i remember when i first started doing work in sort of like environmental philosophy i thought climate change was going to be a passing issue because so many people had been talking about so many people have been thinking about it of course we would you know we would make progress and we would fix it. It would be like, you know, acid rain was in the eighties, right? It's this thing that we right, we'd right. bring our hands about, we'd freak out about. And then like when it came to crunch time, we would do the things necessary because of course we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to go down the path of like, you know, sort of the kind of climate chaos that we're starting to see happen now. Cause it, it, it struck me that like, you know, right. Even if capitalism drives certain folks to like, to push it right to the edge to like get the most profit possible in the end, self-interest would, would lead them to go, all right, uh, this has gone too far. I've made the billions of dollars I need. Uh, I'm going to switch tack now because I want my grandkids to have a livable world. Right, right, right. right. And, and I think that's the time in which we're in now too, is that like, we don't even have to use the grandchildren excuse. I mean, think about the week we are currently living in. There is a fire in Oregon that's creating its own weather patterns. Like, <laughs> you wouldn't believe that if you read that in a novel. You'd be like, what? No, you know? Or, or like, the thing I've been obsessed about is um, my home power plant is sort of uh, the, the front line of the climate battle, mm-hmm. that there is carbon capture and storage that's being promoted right now where literally emissions from ethanol or coal plants or otherwise Mm -hmm. will be captured on site, either pumped through pipeline. It looks like to North Dakota um, or captured on site in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And you would pump this carbon 10,000 feet under the earth's surface where it'll quote unquote stay forever. Mm -hmm. You know, that's such a romantic notion. We're going to just pump poison underground and trust that it will stay there forever right but the technology also suggests that it can be turned into a liquid state and then that that liquid can replace water in hydraulic fracking 
to yeah. get more oil. Yeah. We know we simply can't live like this, you know, but that's um, the human folly in which we're living in. It's rooted back to those things we were talking about in communities that have been sold a list of goods of one industry. Mm-hmm. So you, you want this to happen because it in fact keeps coal in business, which is how you pay your bills yeah. or it allows fracking to go on. Um, and, and those sorts of things. I so relate to what you're saying. Cause I thought stupidly we can fix what we've done. Right. And it looks like a lot stronger dance. Like how, do we dance with climate change? Because there's no sitting this out, you know? No. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah, because we've been so bad at it. It really strikes me is that we pushed past this point where we could do it. So that worries me a lot. And then, I mean, the same is, is true with like, right. The other side of the stuff I work on, which when it comes to equity, it struck me as like, look, there people are essentially good. There might be some folks who are reticent because of enculturation. They're enculturated to think that there are certain hierarchies and like that, you know, we, we do tend to think the way that we're taught the world works uh, as children is the way in fact works. But like, you know, once folks have more opportunities to get to know one another, to like kind of sharing each other's experiences as we become more connected, uh, that that would start getting better too. And it's just not right. It seems like, in fact, folks are doubling down on like the, the harmful ways of relating to the world. And so that's what keeps me up and that keeps driving me to try to think about like these things strike me as obviously things that we need to work on, things that people should obviously not want to happen, right? And like no one should want climate change, right? Like right. maybe in the short term, but in the long term, no, nobody should want racism, right? Right. Like in the, in the short term, it might be like, yeah, like I like kind of like the privileges I have, but in the long term, it's like you don't, you can't have a, a society that that's flourishing and affirming and like empowering when you have institutions that are like very intentionally keeping people down, right? Right. Because any institution that keeps someone else down is probably keeping you down some way you don't recognize. That is so important what you're saying, because that's exactly what, you know, everything for me relates back to that small County I grew up in. And I keep thinking of like, Mm -hmm. Oh man, uh, what's in your lungs? Right. You know, how does that make you feel? Or, or, you know, to your earlier example, West Virginia has actually become a very, um, important part of my life kind of an obsession in me in terms of the mountaintop removal mining and the history of that region that Mm -hmm. you know in the 19 teens um during the coal mine wars i mean these company towns were of course intentionally segregated whites in one corner blacks and other greeks and italians who weren't considered white in other corners you were paid in company script Mm -hmm. so you could only of course shop at the company store and the company could increase tension between these different groups to keep the focus off of mm-hmm. them in their horrible working conditions. Well, these workers went on strike and there was segregated dining mm-hmm. and they kicked open the dining doors and they would say, you need to serve us all mm-hmm. because we work together. And that gets back to a notion that Wendell Berry has put forth about we need a wide economic front. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause at, at least for, I'll say, at least for white people, it's like 
the pocketbook is what changes perspective, I guess. If you believe you're getting screwed or you're working so hard or someone has it easy, but you've somehow had to, you know, pull yourself up in mm-hmm. these ways that you can't see your privilege. Um, what is the narrative that transforms your perspective? Is it an economic narrative? Maybe it is. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't fully know, but I think that's our work is to explore some of that mm-hmm. and to, to highlight those stories where bonds have been built through shared experience. Mm-hmm. But I also say this where earlier I like reading people who have very different experiences. So I think it's, it's a both and. Mm-hmm. And with climate change, our wagons are hitched to each other. <laughs> I mean, there, you know, there is no, we all burn on this planet together, you know, and it's, it's, I'm not interested in burning. You've seen my skin. I'm a pasty ass <laughs> Norwegian. You know, the sun is my arch nemesis and heat is, oh my God, please. Yeah. But, but, but it's that, the, the thing you bring up sort of that I thought about, it relates to this old notion of Ansang Suchi, who I know goes in and out of favor in different ways. She has this important speech called the freedom from fear. Mm-hmm. And I think if we're living in a time where so many of us are afraid and I understand why we are and why we should be, I, I can say personally, I don't always make the best decisions when I'm afraid. Right. And I think, what does that mean if as a global society and we, there's incredible atrocities that we're not only currently in because of climate change that are yet to come. And how do we, create safe harbors in the storm that we're in and the storm that's coming. Uh, I don't have those answers comment, but I yeah. think those are, that is what drives my work. Yeah. And, and it, it brings me back to those stories of, you know, even the near history, the history that hasn't yet made it fully into history books of, of, um, Sure, there's histories written about the Indian boarding schools. There will be new additions to that history with what we're living in. How about the histories of homes for unwed girls who are pregnant, you know, who basically were tortured to give up their children? What does that seem about women having to carry shame in our society? And uh, I'm interested in exploring those dark corners to think about that idea of a safe harbor because we have to know where we've been in order to articulate maybe where we want to go. It's why reading Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad is so important or watching the series that was made about it. And if you see an enslaved man getting burned alive and that makes you uncomfortable, we're only talking about the tip of the iceberg of what really happened. Um, and how do we acknowledge that? How do we lament that? And how do we use that to fuel not only beautiful work, I really think beautiful art should build beautiful systems. And I just think, you know, when people talk about these ideas of it's so great to live in America, are you kidding me? Like half of us are addicted to opioids. The other half are addicted to alcohol, you know, and and that if we look at a good story shouldn't or the story of our lives, we shouldn't be trying to get to Friday Mm -hmm. to drink ourselves silly, to forget about, you know, 
five days of our work week. Mm-hmm. That's not a way to exist mm-hmm. in the long term. And, and those seem to be the building blocks of industrial capitalism in this culture is that we should be so grateful for what little we have that we never ask deeper, harder transformational questions. Mm-hmm. And and where my thinking has been transformed has been through stories, mm-hmm. and 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 those can take a variety of forms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I think that being the case, it's deeply important to think about how do we tell those stories that we need to have, right? So that we all better critically examine our lives and what we have and what we could have, and to explore that possibility space that is left unexplored, right? To be curious but how we could be better. That's right. And I, I think reaching for those aspirations is um, I'm, I will say I'm not interested in putting people in, the, I'm interested in putting certain people in their place. They normally have the term billionaire associated <laughs> with them, but you know, but in, in terms of our artistic lives, I'm not interested in saying Clement, you have to stay over here and I have to stay over there. It's, it is uh, the the metaphor that sort of orchestrates my life is the prairie, and mm-hmm. the prairie is made up of diversity of grasses and intermingled roots. Mm-hmm. And I think that way of being bonded to each other, and maybe I step across whatever imaginary line we've all made over closer to you, or you step over closer to me, and then interesting things get to happen, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think it's, it's being in that, you know, you can think about it as a prairie, you can think about it as a choir, you know, a multi-voice choir. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and through that resonance, something, something greater than the individual parts should happen. And I think that leads us, hopefully, my God, towards justice and equity, mm-hmm. um, because we we have a lot of work to do, and like you point out with climate change, um, it's given me a lot of white hairs, and it's going to give me a lot more white hairs, you know. And so, it in my own way, and it's not to be cynical, I think I have great job security because there's no shortage of you know shit to figure out. Yes, um, and and we need systems that encourage people to do that work um, rather than to worry about if they're going to have clean drinking water. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, yeah, we should view that as an insult to our, to our sense of creativity that these sort of things are given permission to exist. Yeah. Um, and so I think a, a way to rectify that is through it, it's that cave with the lantern to point something out and, uh, articulate it as best we can and to work towards, uh, restorative justice. Yeah, I think on that note, um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll end the episode because I, I think that's a good place to leave off. So uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Clement. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been such a joy to just be in conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Uh, thank you for spending an hour and a half chatting with me. Oh, totally. Anytime. I'm glad to. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'll invite you back for a, a future episode, right? Once at the book comes out and maybe we'll reflect on it or something. Yeah. You know, maybe there'll be people with pitchforks. I mean, you know, who knows? It's going to, it'll drop next June and it'll drop at the beginning of Pride Month. And so I'll start touring. And I know I'm in conversations with them. Um, 
Athena Kildegard to yeah. uh, get up to you guys once that drops and that'll, that'll be fun and, and enjoyable. But yeah, it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm at that point, Clement, where I'm just like, God, I'm ready for that to be done. <laughs> yeah. And then to be working on other things, you yeah, know, yeah. you're just sort of like, God, I, I know this book inside and out, but do I even? You know? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. That, yeah. I think with any big project, you just need to like let it out in the world, take a break from it for a bit. And then, you know, when you're ready, re-encounter it. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it, it it's sort of, you know, it's been a number of years of working on it going between two publishers mm -hmm. and, and it'll, I have to get to my editor by August 15th, which is great. And just to have like a deadline and, um, and to know it's coming out next June. So at base I can go, there will be a day where this is out, <laughs> you know, and I will just have to say, this is as far as I could get at world, you know, like I just ran out of time. And, um, the nice thing is, um, you know, I mean, there are, there are people I have in my life and I, I get this, that uh, they write one book and they, uh, and usually it's a book of nonfiction. It's usually their first and they go, I, I don't know what else I want to write. And maybe, maybe that is the one book they're going to write, but I, I just know mm -hmm. that is certainly not my case, yeah. you know, that I have, um, uh, large parts of, of what I want to explore cannot be, I'm not a Tom Wolf. I'm not writing a 5,000 page book. No. You know? Yeah. 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 So, well, no, yeah. I mean, and then I guess the way to think about like the imperfections of your current book is that those are just opportunities to write new books in the future. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, and I, I think two books are great tools to create conversation and get you thinking, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I think that's, even with like the work around diabetes lately, like God, you know, when five years ago, if you would have asked me like, Oh, are you ever going to write about being diabetic? I'd be like, no, that's so uninteresting, you know, but then you kind of stew about it and you're like, Oh, maybe I do have something to say, you know, like yeah. who else went to diabetic camp as a child? I did. And I want to hear the story. You mean where the, where the doctors and nurses, I felt this is such a bad joke to make. I felt like the SS was coming to steal us because during the night they would come in with flashlights into right. the cabin and then they grab your hand and poke you. <laughs> and then they whisk you away to a room and either cram fruit juice in you or poke you with a needle you right. know it was like nighttime was not a pleasant time <laughs> diabetic camp you know or or it's like little Susie is having seizures in the soccer field you know because her blood sugar is too low you know yeah. my parents thought this would be such a good bond oh hi go to a camp with other children who are chronically ill right. that will help you no it will traumatize you <laughs> it turns out you know like, what are we doing this morning, little Billy? There'd be a tiny little teddy bear. I'm not shitting you. Like, yeah. sitting up front. They'd have a blue arrow, like, either on your arms, your thighs, or your belly. Uh. About, We're going to teach you how to inject yourselves. Like, we look like little druggies. I can remember not having enough belly fat that when I tried to jab myself uh. in the stomach... I screamed and then of course my hands let go and it looked like a little dangling feather there. And I'm like, Oh, it's hurting. It's hurting. No. Oh my God, Clement. It's just, you know, the silly, silly stuff. Yeah. So yeah. I, I feel like yeah. that needs to be a book. That needs to be a book. Yeah, no, that, no, that is totally, I mean, cause I'm doing, um, 
this sort of larger, like exploring the history of how it was first identified something was going wrong related to this illness was that in ancient Egypt, ants were used to test urine. And if there was the presence of sugar, ants would go to that urine. And they, they understood that something was wrong inside. They didn't obviously have, uh, you know, the understanding of, of what that was. But in, you know, in the part of the world you're from, um, insulin was discovered and isolated mm-hmm. in Canada and, and very cruel experiments were done on dogs to lead to that understanding and eventually the the winning of the Nobel Prize. Yeah. But I don't think that's necessarily a history people know. No. You know, think about like dog lovers reading that book. You know, they're gonna be like, oh God, snowball like was put <laughs> under those, you know, cruel experiments, yeah. you know? And um or, you know, just funny things too of like everyone needs to read about how gay diabetic sex works, yeah. you know, and you're just like my God, there's some weird people who have fetishes around like port sites and, you know, BDSM, you could smack people with an insulin pump, I guess, you know, I mean, (laughs) just silly stuff, you know, my God. So no, that is, that is going to be project number two. I don't quite know yet. Cause I, I want to sort of do that long history, kind of like Siddhartha Mukherjee and the emperor of all maladies on uh, the 3,500 year history of cancer. But I feel like you can do one of those books where you have this sort of formal history side of it and sort of alternate chapters between that and sort of personal experience with the disease. Yeah. That's- but I, I'm, I'm going to have to talk about it with my editor because I want to take on a lot. You know, I want to talk about climate change right. as well, but not have it feel so uh, contrived. Right. And how do you get all of that into one book? I'm not quite sure yet, but I, I want to try it. You know, yeah. I, I think if you you tell the funny stories, uh, right, and I think you just tell the stories that are true to you, that stuff will come out, right? Because those are all things that I think are sort of kicking around in your psyche, right? Yep, exactly. It's kind of like again that great thing about being an essayist is you you get to sort of this leads into that and bleeds over into this and um and you get to some new insights that you couldn't otherwise imagine before sign off i should apologize for some of the weird sound artifacts that occurred towards the end of the conversation we just listened to my dog jellybean had decided that i'd spent too much time speaking with taylor and not enough time paying attention to her so she began whining to try to get me to take her outside and play anyhow back to the closing of the episode I think there are a number of lessons to be gleaned from the things that Taylor and I spoke about over the past four episodes. Those lessons include, one, the importance of attending to histories, perspectives, and social cues that might be uncomfortable. Two, the importance of listening and humility as strategies to ensure that one's work is both good and informed by truth. And three, the importance of being confident that work towards equity and sustainability are worthwhile, even when such work seems futile or impossible. Please join me again in the next episode where I'll introduce you to Janice Watts, who's the Director of Culture and Partnerships at Fresh Energy, a nonprofit working to transition Minnesota to a more sustainable power grid. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. 
all the music on Jazz Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.